Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Hey, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to uh, Romans chapter 8. One of my favorite chapters. There are two or three chapters. I mean, I love God's Word, but there are, there are just, you know, a couple of chapters that if, if I was on a desert, deserted island, that I would just want to make sure that I had this chapter or that chapter. Romans 8 is one of those chapters. I just love Romans 8. And we're going to be looking at kind of a closing section of Romans 8. We're going we're gonna to read verses 28 through 37, but we're going to focus on verses 31 uh, and through 34. If you're reading with me, I'm in English Standard Version, uh, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. For those whom he foreknew, excuse me, I skipped it. For those who were called according to his purpose, skip that. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Please pay attention to these questions. We're going to come back to these. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's... For you to be caught up in what's going on in that, that section of Scripture, especially verses 30, 31, 32, 33, 34 kind of thing, you've got to realize that Paul has kind of come to an end of a section of writing to the church at Rome, and he's written chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. If you have never done this before, let me encourage it. Sometime just sit down in an easy to read translation and read uh, chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 through. But better yet, if you can listen to it, just listen to it and, and experience the Word of God blowing over you this way. It's just an incredible way to receive the Word of the Lord. And, and these passages are beautiful. And so what's happened is Paul is writing all this and then he gets to this place where he's like, wow! And so he starts writing these questions that I think are intended for his readers to, to think deeply about what's just been said. To be caught up and kind of captured. You know, the, the, he, so he asks some questions to provoke some thought here. He, he says, you know, what do we say about these things? What, what would you say about all of this now? What do you have to say? And then he says, you know, if God's for us, who could be against us? And if, if he's given a son, won't he give us everything else? When he gets, you know, just freely do that. And because of all that, who could condemn? You know, he, he just hits these series of questions. And those questions are meant to be answered. 
They're not just rhetorical questions that you should just blow off. These are questions that deserve our deep thought. Get us thinking here. These questions and, and the answers that fall out of that, I believe are for everyone here this morning. And especially for anyone who's here who may be struggling with doubt. God wants you to know the reality that he's for you. He wants you to know a couple of things to, as we step into this. First of all, he wants you to know that he knows. He knows your struggle. And he understands. See, God, God understands. The psalmist in Psalm 103 tells us a great truth about God. It says he knows our frame. He knows how you're framed up. He gets what holds you up. What keeps you moving. And then he knows that you're but dust. Isn't that encouraging? You know, you're just a little bit of dirt. Just a little bit of dirt there. But he understands. Now let me ask you a question. What do you expect from dirt? I dug in dirt yesterday. I replanted a, a, a bed of, of things uh, as part of my, my, my bride's Mother's Day present for me. And, you know, I wish I could have expected the dirt to get out of the hole... <laughs> You know, and then repack itself around these new plants. Dirt doesn't work that way. Just doesn't. Just let me tell you, don't expect much from dirt. You're not going to get much back. Now, trust me, I get this. If you are in Christ, yes, your dirt has been redeemed. And yes, your dirt is going to get glorified one day. Okay, that's the truth about you. But... You're still dust. God understands that. God, God gets you. Many of you know that I have a two and a half year old grandson because I won't quit talking about him, so that's how you know. You know, I also have, uh, she's not two weeks old yet, is she? Almost two weeks old granddaughter now. And our little grandson was with us when his sister was being born. He spent the night. And um, Emmett, you know, he, he's all over the place. But he, he, the other day he was in the den with me and he took off through the kitchen and then got to the hallway and stopped. And so he turns around and he comes back and he says, Papa, play hallway dark. Now, I knew what that meant. I said, well, Emmett, you know, just messing with him. What, what do you want, buddy? Let's play in here. Because Papa didn't want to get up. Um, <laughs> to be truthful, you know. And he said, play hallway, light on. Please. <laughs> okay, what do you do then? Papa gets up. You know, Papa goes to the hallway. And Papa plays in this lit hallway now. Now, when Emmett came running to me complaining about the darkness because he's scared of the dark, I didn't look at him and think, well, no grandson of mine is going to be afraid of the dark. Go back in that dark boy and suck it up. I didn't do that for a couple reasons. One is because Kathy would have killed me. <laughs> and two, sometimes I'm still afraid of the dark. Truth be known. You know, we all have weaknesses. I don't put my grandson down for that weakness. That's just where he's at in his life right now. And I don't understand it, but somewhere along the line, some Christians have been fed a script 
You know, and, and they, they think Christianity consists of something like cloud nine experiences all the time. A new miracle each day. And then when it's not there, oftentimes they'll plaster on a fake smile, you know, and conjure up just, praise the Lord. Because they think that's what they're supposed to do. They, they don't think they're supposed to experience weakness. They don't think they're ever supposed to fail or have doubt or be frustrated. Folks, if those last few things are true of you, guess what? You're what? Human. You're dust. You're a dusty human. I believe God understands us. He knows. And I believe God gives us bigger breaks than most people do. I believe that about my heavenly father. You know, these, these Christians have these expectations, you know, of one another, of themselves. You know, there was a day when there was this man named Job. And in his day, you could have thought about Job as Mr. Spiritual. I mean, you really could have. In Job chapter 1, God brags on Job. He says there's nobody else like Job on the face of the earth. That's God's word. Nobody else like him. And so he, God says to Satan, he says, have you thought about Job? Man, look at him. He is just something. Now, I, I want to I say something here about Job. Job doubted sometimes. You read the book, you found out he failed. He was frustrated. Now, let me also say this. That may describe you right now. But that is not God's ultimate plan for your life. I want to be quick to say that in your relationship with God, he doesn't intend for you to just camp out there. He has better plans for you. You know, you don't have to say, well, great, I'll just rejoice that I'm a big failure. God has bigger plans for you than that. And these series of questions that Paul is shooting out here, the goal is to bring you to a higher level. To take that truth and these, these questions begin to apply God's word to your heart. So that you come away knowing that God is for you and that God loves you. That God cares about every element and aspect of your life. And so I want us to look at those four questions deeply this morning. The first question is found in Romans 8, 31 that I want us to look at. And Paul simply says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, here's what I've done. I'm, re I'm going to reframe each of these four questions in a way that I think will help us unpack a little bit better what, what, what Paul's aiming at here. So, this first reframing, if you would, of Paul's question for me is this. The first question I see it is, what is your response to God up to this point? What is your response to God up to this point? Whether you've just read Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, now you're like, what, what's your response? Or maybe it's over the course of your life as God has revealed himself to you over the span of your life. Uh, up to this point, what's your response to God? What do you say to these things that God has shown you? And I think Paul is just thinking about God's love. He's just painted this incredible, beautiful, divine picture in the earlier chapters about, about who you really are. And about how you and I failed miserably in our sin. And how God still loves us and what he did about it. So what's your response so far to that truth? To these things. Some of you say, to what things? Well, go back and look at, let's just for example, Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. No matter what you and I are facing, all things work together for good. Like for instance, 
If you are in this room today and you're a believer, then you need to know this. God has predestined that you become like his son. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's your ultimate end result of your life is you will become like Jesus. God has predestined that. If you're a believer this morning, you need to know that you have a calling from God. If you're a mom here on Mother's Day, that's part of your calling. You've been called to be a mom. If you believe in him, the Bible says you have been justified. Just as if you never sinned. That's why you stand before God. And if you're a believer, one day you will be ultimately glorified. That's all coming for you. What do you say to those things? How do you respond to those things? Well, I'll tell you how I think we ought to respond. I think we ought to just fall down and go in with thankful hearts and say, Thank you, Lord. After hearing those truths, I think we just ought to, we ought to be people who are constantly filled with worship and awe and, and wow. That's what we, we ought to say. Yet so often, followers of Jesus Christ walk around with a different set of responses to those spiritual truths. What's your response to the reality in God's word that he's predestined you to become like his son? What's your response to the fact that he's going to glorify you one day and you're going to be with him reigning for all eternity? You know, is your response these days to say, too busy, got this career thing going on, you know, I'm a busy mom, got to take care of the kid, just kind of too busy to, to press into that? Or is your, is your response, Lord, I bless you, Lord, I praise your holy name. You know, in the, in the early days of this country being founded, there were groups of people called pioneers. There were pioneers and settlers. And pioneers were always kind of out on the front end of the edge of things. And this one pioneer was out and he, was, he came to the Mississippi River and he was going to have to cross the Mississippi, but it was frozen solid. And he didn't know how thick the ice was. And so he, he walks out and he kind of tests it a little bit. And then he backs back up onto the shore and he, he's got to get across to get to where he's going. And so he decides finally, I'm going to cross. But he decides, you know what? I, I'm going I'm to get down and I'm going to crawl because distributing my weight over ice is a better idea. And that way I can be closer to hearing if it starts cracking. So he slowly starts crawling across the Mississippi. Listening for that fatal cracking sound. Well, he's about halfway out in the middle of the Mississippi when he hears behind him singing and whistling and a loud noise and he slowly turns his head and he sees coming at him about to hit the ice a horse-drawn wagon with four horses and a wagon filled with coal. And this guy just hits the ice at full speed, cuts across the ice, goes right past the guy who's on his hands and knees crawling across the ice and makes it to the other side. And the guy's still there on his hands and knees just kind of, just knowing he's about to go in. And so he realizes this ice must be pretty thick. So he gets up and he starts walking and he starts walking, growing in confidence, thinking, I got this. Well, why did he get this? Because somebody knew about the ice. Somebody had trusted this ice before and were able to go ahead of him. So he got bolder. Are, are you the kind of person with God's promises that all you do is crawl? <laughs> or are you somebody who when you read the promises of God, you hit the ice, man. You're out there. 
See, so many of us, we read the promises of God and we want to do this. God is looking for people who hear his word and say, I believe you, God. I believe your promises. I'm, I'm all in, God. I'm, I'm coming at you. You know, other people look at things like the promises of God and they, don't, they can't trust. What do you say to the things of God? What are you saying right now in your life about the things that God has revealed to you? What's your response to all God has shown you so far in your life? What are you doing? Second question, and I'm going to give you my reframing of the question first. Who's cheering for you? Who's currently in your corner? Who's cheering for you? In Romans 8.31, the Bible says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God's for us, who can be against us? Now, I want to bring your mind back to something you know, that Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, if you're not for me, then you're against me. If you're not for me, then you're against me. Now, if you're not for him, that doesn't mean that he's against you. I know about Mother's Day. And I know that sometimes mamas will beg and borrow, plead, will you just come to church with me today for Mother's Day? Will you just, will you just, will you just show up today? So if you're here under, you know, that kind of urging, I want you to know that God is not against you. God is for you. God, God loves you. You know? You know, you may be here today and say, well, you know, I'm kind of on the other. I love God. I'm, I'm committed myself to God. He's for you too. He's for, he's for all of us. You know, that word, that little word in Romans chapter 8 verse 31 that says if can also be translated since. Some translations do it that way. Since God is for us. We, we need to live as if that's the reality. God is not against you this morning. You need to know and experience since God is for you. Some of us don't live that way though. So, so very often, so many Christians live as trying to interpret their circumstances and when their circumstances aren't going the greatest, then what they begin thinking is that God's not for me. Things are going bad. That's a lie. See, some of you begin thinking God's punishing you. That's not reality in what's going on most of the time. God is for you, not against you. If he's convicting you, if he's disciplining you, then sure. But God is not against you. I want you to look at all that truth again just one more time. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, I would add into that. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Since this is who God is, who could stand against you? Now here's the deal. When your heart really receives that truth, when it, when it comes into you and you kind of own it and it owns you, you'll rest. You'll finally rest. No matter what you're facing, no matter what storms are blowing around you, you will begin to finally rest. You'll experience what David kind of communicated in Psalm 27. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? 
When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. David, David knew God that way. He knew God was for him. The psalmist also wrote in Psalm 118, it says, The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? The Lord is with me. He will help me. You know, you have to have that kind of understanding, that kind of depth of having God's promises grip your heart if you're able, ever going to live like somebody maybe like Gideon. You can go back and read about it, but in Gideon chapters 7 and 8, we read this incredible story about Gideon, how Gideon, his army is dwindled down to like 300 men through the will of God actually. And Gideon takes those 300 men and he goes into battle against 135,000. You like them odds? But Gideon knew that God was for him. Folks, if you're going to take on odds like that, you have got to believe. You better know that God is not against you. God is for you. God is cheering for you. God is saying, I'm going to apply my strength to your weakness and it changes the game. Maybe when the Holy Spirit was inspiring Paul to write Romans chapter 8, especially this passage, these questions, maybe in Paul's mind were some of those Old Testament heroes like that. Maybe it was some of the Psalms that he's remembering. One of the things that really is the first step towards becoming strong in this in the, in the ways of the Lord like Paul speaks of is first admitting that you're weak. That's what Paul did. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If your heart is ever going to have rest, the power of God is going to have to rest upon you. And that only comes when you begin to admit that you are weak on your own devices. Far too often, so many Christians doom themselves to a life of frustration and failure and fear because they don't admit their weakness. You know, when, when in the business sector, when somebody wants to maybe start a new company, so it, oftentimes it'll happen like this. Partnerships are formed and usually a partnership starts with somebody with bucks who's got some money and somebody who has knowledge and experience come together and form a partnership and they begin to launch this new operation, this new company. And they, you know, the guy with the loot and the guy with the logistics come together and they, they launch this new thing. Here's the deal when God forms a partnership with a human being. God brings his strength and we bring our weakness and the Bible says that's a perfect partnership because that's all we have to bring to the Lord is just admitting that we're weak. It's a perfect match when we do that. Now I, I want you to take that question that we've been looking at and look at it just on the other side. How about let's ask it this way. Since God is for us, who cares who's against us? Who cares? What, what difference does it matter? The one who spoke the heavens into create, the one who flung the universe. You know, scientists tell us that our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has like a hundred billion stars in it. 
And that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is like one of a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. It's like six trillion miles. I can't even get that. I don't, I don't understand that, you know. Can't conceive of that. And that God who did all that, just uttering words, is on your side. That God is, is for you. I would say your odds are no longer bad. No matter what you face. And so it really does make sense to kind of go through life. If God is for me or since God is for me, who cares? Who cares who comes against me? I've got a loving heavenly father who, who is all over me, who loves me so much that he sent his most precious possession, his only begotten son. So the first question is, how are you responding to that truth these days? How are you living in that? How are you taking that in? What do you say about those things? And then secondly, who's cheering for you? Do you realize God is cheering for you? Here's the third question. My rephrase. When will God give up on you? When, when will God give up on you? When will he start, stop pouring out his love? When will he stop caring for you? Paul puts it this way. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously give us all things. Now, I want you to follow through what Paul is speaking in this passage. See, God has already determined, I'm going to sneeze, it's coming, just bear with me. God has already determined, predetermined, that if you're in Christ, you're going, to, you're going to be like Jesus one day. You're going to be conformed to his image. Remember, he called you while you were still in your sin. And in that sin, he still justified you. And he's already got in mind the beautiful person that you're going to be as your salvation is fully unfolded in all eternity. He's got that worked out in his mind. You're the object of his love. Since even before the foundation of this old broken world, God demonstrated that love through his son on the cross. He, he demonstrated that love. The most God could give, he gave. He already gave his best. And if he's already given you his very best, his son, why do you live with the thought that he's going to hold something else back? Why do you walk through life thinking God's, God's withholding? You know, I'm not getting this, so God, God's holding it back. He's already given you his best. I love that old kind of saying. Some people would say it's a cliche. I don't think you could turn this into a cliche. That, that saying that one day a, a man came to Jesus and, you know, he, he said to him, Jesus, how much do you love me? And the, the, the saying goes that Jesus stretched out his arms and then he died. That's how much he loved you. He, 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 he put it all out there for you. And he did it on the cross, demonstrating his love for you while you were still in sin. Which the Bible says means you were still hostile to God. Still hostile to God. And God loved you even then. There are some of us in this room who, years ago, would take God's name in vain every other breath. You know what? God loved you then. He cared about you even when you were carrying out that. He loved you. Do you think he's going to start loving you less now that you're trying to honor him? Maybe in feeble ways, but you're still trying? 
See, if you think God stops caring about you now, you know, saying, you know, well, maybe he's got to be more busy about people that he needs to save. God can take care of all that. You're his child. He's not going to give up on you. Let me remind you of what Paul said in Romans 5. He said, when we were utterly helpless, completely helpless, Christ came and at just the right time he died for sinners. So why, why is it then that so often Christians become hesitant in approaching God? You know, why, why is it that we, we live in fear sometimes? You know, I, I think some people think, well, I didn't read my 10 chapters today. Oh, Lord, I didn't, I didn't try to witness to three or four people this week. Lord, I just, I wasn't perfect. You know, I haven't, haven't done my four hours of quiet time. Folks, those are things to help you. Yes, they're, they're calls by God on your life, but they're, they're to help you. God hasn't stopped caring for you at all when you fail him. Not, not, not at all. He will never stop caring. That verse in Romans 8, 32. How will he not also with him, with Jesus, since he gave you Jesus, graciously give you all things? That word that's translated there, gives us, in other places gets translated, forgives us. It can be translated either way. It's a very interesting kind of word. It could be translated, he will not also with him graciously forgive us all things. Is there something that is currently keeping you from approaching God in prayer? Is maybe there's some sin going on in your life and you're thinking, I have no right to go to God. I can't go to God. Friends, I want to tell you this. You can't get far away from God so far that you can't just turn around and come right back. There's nothing that you can do that will keep you from experiencing the love of God. He will graciously give us all things and forgive us of all things. I've had people over my 30 plus years in ministry tell me, well, the reason I'm not in church is because I've, I've done this. You know, I, I, I did this certain thing. You know, I, you have no idea how far away from God I've gone. You know how I respond to that statement? You're right, I don't. But God knows. He knows. He knows how far away you've gotten. But he loves you. He doesn't care about how far away you've gotten. What he cares about is bringing you back. Because he loves you that much. You just got to come back to the cross. You just got to repent. You got to turn. You got to come back to him. You have access to God. He didn't spare his son. He won't withhold anything else. He won't withhold his affection or his love. So what did you show up needing today? Did you need strength? He'll give it to you. Do you need direction? The Bible says God loves giving people wisdom. He'll lavish it on you. Are you in need of healing? One of the things that this book tells us is that one day all of God's people are going to experience healing. Maybe his will, bring, will come to you now in this life. Do you need financial help? God's got a plan for that. Don't limit God. There's nothing that God, that's too hard for him. Nothing that you're facing. And he demonstrated how much he loved you on the cross. So all these things he'll bring graciously. God... The answer to that question is, when will God give up? Never. 
God is never going to give up to, on you. Here's the last question. What's the final verdict? What's kind of, what's kind of the, what's, what's, what's the end game here? What's the final verdict? And Paul kind of asked that this way in verses 33 and 34. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And here's what's happening. Paul, Paul is now looking into heaven kind of as a courtroom scene, kind of the courts of heaven. And what he's, he's starting to use this kind of legal, legal language. He's, he's I, I, kind of pushing into that. And the words that's used here, the picture that he's painting here, it's kind of like somebody has rushed into a courtroom, a trial's going on, you're, you're, you're on trial, somebody's rushed into the courtroom, runs straight to the judge and says, I've got another accusation against this one. That's kind of, kind of the imagery. And here's what Paul kind of says to that image. <laughs> Who's it to condemn? Who, who, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus, he's the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God. And he indeed is interceding. So who's to condemn? Do you have anybody in your life that condemns you? You know, the Bible tells us that all of us have a condemner in our lives. He's called Satan. That's one of the things that he does. He comes and he accuses you in the presence of God. The very last book of the Bible, Revelation, tells us in chapter 12 that he's known as the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before God. This is the book of Revelation, the end of time, describing what all of history, humanity's history has been like. And it says that day and night, one of the things that Satan has done in your life, he has accused you before God. Now maybe some of you have never heard that before. Maybe this is the very first time that you realize that Satan has gone to God accusing you. You may not even have been aware of it, but let me tell you who has been. God. He has listened to it every day since he created the first human being after the fall. He has heard the voice of the enemy accusing you in the very presence of God. Look at that Joe Still. He's so imperfect. He's such a sinner. He's been stuck in that same sin for so long. I wouldn't waste my time on him. That, that's, that's what Satan is doing in the presence of our father. He accuses us day and night. He did it to Job. We talked about this earlier. Uh, again, Job chapter 1, you can go back and read it. You know, God says, have you thought about Job? Man, there's nobody like him in all the earth. And Satan's accusation comes at Job this way. He says, yeah because you prospered him. Yeah, because he's got good health. Yeah, because he's got a great family. You take all that away from him, God, he'll curse your face. He'll just curse you. That's, that's Satan accusing. The prophet Zechariah had a vision. And in that vision, it's recorded in the third chapter, it says this angel showed him Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. He's right there accusing you all the time. We talked about this last week. Peter. You know, you can see Peter. You read, read, the, read the gospel, you just see Peter. The Bible tells us that Jesus took the disciples after the Lord's Supper and headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Peter and Jesus have a conversation. You can see Pete kind of walk and put his arm around Jesus and said, I know you told those other guys, you know, that, you know, somebody's going to deny you and fail you and flee and not me. 
I am with you always. You can see Jesus looking at Pete and saying, that's my line. You know, I'll never let you down. But Pete, before the sun rises, you're going to deny me three times. Before this day's over, you will deny me three different times. And Peter, just because you seem to be so unaware of this, I want to teach you a lesson about spiritual warfare. Satan has stood in front of God and demanded to sift you, man. To so stretch your life, to tear at you, to rip at you. Because he wants to see you fail miserably. God's been listening to him. He's been listening to the accusations. Now, God's listening to those requests from Satan for you. He wants to sift you. And yes, you've failed and you've sinned, you know. And you may even think of yourselves, why would God spend any time listening to me? I have no right. I have no authority. Satan puts those thoughts in your head to drive you away from God. See, Paul writes and says, who is there to condemn? Who could possibly condemn? Well, one of them's the devil. But there are also people. There are people in this world. We see it in Luke chapter, in Luke chapter 10. Martha and Mary throw a dinner party. And they invite Jesus. And so Jesus is there. And Mary, Jesus is in the den. And he's teaching about how good and right and beautiful God is. And Mary's sitting there and she's thinking, this is the best Bible study ever. Martha's in the kitchen. She's busying herself with all the, the busy work. You can read about this in Luke chapter 10. She's just very, very busy. She's getting all the stuff done. Doing all the church work. And, and she goes to Jesus. She goes to God. And in front of God and everybody, she accuses her sister. She just lays it out there. Jesus, don't you hate that I'm working all by myself? Jesus, tell my sister to get up. Jesus, she's just the lazy rascal. You can just, he is accusing Mary in front of Jesus and everybody else there. What does Jesus tell Martha? He says, Martha, if you want to be busy, it's okay. Go be busy. But Mary has chosen the better part. I'm not going to condemn her. I'm, I'm not going to do that. She's sitting at my feet where she needs to be. You know, the Apostle Paul had people who antagonized him, who went after him, who tried to demonize him, who attacked him, who condemned him everywhere he went. Judaizers, false teachers, legalists. In 2 Corinthians 10, we see one of the places where that happened. Paul even writes about it. He knew the rumors. 2 Corinthians 10, he's heard the rumor that his letters are weighty and strong. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Basically they're saying, yeah, 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 he writes pretty good. But he's a scrawny dude when you see him in person. And he can't preach. Who in the world will care anything about some dude that can't preach? I mean, they're constantly just attacking him. Even while he was in jail, they were stirring up strife against Paul to try to get the jailers to attack Paul. He had his antagonizers. But you know what liberated Paul? Paul was able to say, who cares? 
Who cares who's against me? See, when we recognize that God doesn't look at us that way. He's not frowning at us. God's not some, you know, heavenly highway patrolman with radar and a trap set for you, waiting for you to go one mile over the limit and slam it on you. That is not God of the universe. See, Jesus said, I've come to give you life, give it to you abundantly, bless you. So don't accept the lies that people feed about you to others or even to yourself. You just need to remember, if they condemned you, just remember, Jesus has justified you. When condemnation comes, Jesus has justified me. Look at verse 34 one more time. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. He's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Th this passage shows us the work of Jesus. It tells us certain things about Jesus. First of all, it tells us that he, he died. He took the penalty for your sin and my sin. He took the condemnation that was intended for us. Secondly, he's risen, which means he conquered sin and death. He, he defeated it. Third, he's at the right hand of God, which is the place of honor and the place of deliverance. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us something really, really incredible about this Jesus being at the right hand of the Father. It tells us he ascended and he sat down. Some of you are saying, did he get tired? What's the sit down deal about? Well, here's, here's what you kind of need to know. In the temple, there were none of these. Where, where the priests served, there were none of these. Because the priests were always busy making sacrifice. Moment after moment, day after day, they kept... So there were no seats in the temple where the priests were serving and doing sacrifice. So when the Bible said that Jesus once for all made a sacrifice and he sat down, you know what that's saying? He's saying it's done. Sacrifice don't have to take place anymore. Look, look at this passage, verses 11 and 12. It says, And every priest stands daily at the service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So what's he doing? Seated next to God. He's interceding for you. When the accuser comes and accuses you in front of God, Jesus leans over and says, hey dad, Satan's right, but he's mine. She, she's mine. I, I bought them with my blood. God, they're, they're mine. God says, got it. And he gives a verdict, not guilty. They're mine. Do you sin? Well, yeah, you do. Go ahead and tell the truth. You know, deal with Satan's accusation. When Satan comes and says, you're a sinner, you say, yeah. Yeah, I've probably done some things you don't even know about. Just agree with him. And then turn to your father. Because there's no condemnation from your father. He says that in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. None. There's going to be no condemnation. So if people or the devil, you know, come at you with accusation and condemnation, don't be swayed by that. You know, one of my great desires is that God, is that people who are accusers, you know, people who will accuse you and condemn you, I wish they would at least just begin taking a lesson from Satan and, and take it to God instead. 
if you got a problem with uh, accusation and gossip, uh, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Go ahead and do it, but just take it to God. Because he can do something about it. Nobody else can. Just take it to God. Because, quite frankly, you're worse than Satan. At least Satan does that. At least Satan goes to God. See, we don't have to worry about who condemns because God has justified. In 1 John 1, 9, the Bible tells us that, you know, when you come to that place where you just agree with Satan, yeah, I, I sinned. If you confess that sin, the Bible tells us that God's faithful and just, he forgives you. Not only does he forgive, man, he cleanses you. 1 John chapter 2 tells us, if you do sin, guess what? You got an advocate. The one sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's Jesus, the righteous one. I heard a story a while back about a group of Englishmen who wanted to go visit the Holy Land. And so they went and they got a, you know, a tour guide, tour bus kind of thing. And they were going through the Holy Land. And the tour guide on the first day was telling them all kinds of interesting facts. And he was trying to make some comparisons between life in Israel and life in, in England. And he knew that in England they, were, they had a lot of sheep. And so he said to, to, to these men, he said, now one of the things that's very different about our culture than yours is usually, you know, in your culture, you'll see people behind sheep driving them with sticks. Get, trying to push him ahead. He said, in, our, in my country, when you see a shepherd, he's just going to be walking out in front of the sheep and the sheep are going to be following him because the sheep know his voice and they follow him. Well, about the second day on the tour, this, this, one of the Englishmen looks out the window and there's a bunch of sheep and they're kind of running kind of scattered way and there's a guy behind him with two sticks coming after him. And the, he, he hollers, hey, stop, stop the bus, stop the bus. So he goes up and he and the tour guide get off the bus. And they go out into the field where this guy is. And he says, you know, I, what, what's going on here? Are you not from here? He said, no, I was, I was born and raised here. And he said, oh. He said, okay. He said, I thought that in your country that shepherds, you know, when they interact with their sheep, they just walk along in front of them and, and, you know, they hear your voice. And I just figured you were from another country. And he said, no, no, that's true. That's what shepherds here do. They just, you know, walk along. He said, but I'm not a shepherd. I'm a butcher. <laughs> Here's the truth. There's a butcher that wants to make minced meat out of you. He wants to have you for lunch. But you serve a God who is so much bigger and so much better than that accuser. The one who would seek to condemn you. The one who would bring accusation against you. You have a father who loves you so much. So when, when that evil one comes and tries to condemn you, I got a shepherd, man. You're the butcher. I got a shepherd who loves me. Every time the butcher comes to, to steal from you your joy, to kill your faith, to destroy you, you say, I got a good shepherd. He's my father in heaven. Yes, some of the things you're saying about me, butcher, are true. But my father loves me in spite of that. I am his. He has declared the verdict and he has found me not guilty. Not guilty. He's my father. He's my savior. What do you say about these things? God is for you. Who cares who can be against you? God's never going to give up on you. Never. Let's pray. I don't know how you ended up here today. What the motivation was. 
But I pray that your heart, no matter who you are, I pray all of our hearts have been pricked by Paul's questions. Cause us to think deeply and examine. Lord, are there places in my heart that I've just not thought deeply about these things and Satan's having a field day in my life? Have I been beaten up and battered and kept down because I've not considered the truth of your word. I'm not trusting in your promises. Or maybe you, you showed up here today and you think you're right to be condemned so you live that way and you forget that God, God is cheering for you. God is for you. Maybe today you just need to return to your father. Maybe you just need to confess and agree with God. God, I've wandered far away. I just want to come back home. I just want to experience all of your grace, all of your mercy, that I don't want to live under the lie and the shame anymore. I know I'm yours. I know I've been bought with a price. I know, I know that there's no condemnation from you, so I come back today. Maybe some of you here this morning just need to stop, come out of the fear. Not be afraid of who is sending a condemning message. Because who cares? God, the God, is for you. God, we come now because those questions and the statements that flow out of them just bring us to worship you. So we come to worship. We come now, God, to say we're not going to live in fear. We come now, God, to worship you, saying we're not going to live in fear of our finances. We're going to freely give ourselves and our finances over to you, God. We're going to tithe. We're going to trust you with our money. We're going to trust you with our lives, God. We're going to give you our hearts and worship now. Where we're going to recommit. We're going to do whatever you call us to because we are fully convinced that, God, you're for us. So what does it matter what's against us? Lord, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice you made. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you take his word and open it to our minds. And Father, Father God, we thank you that you gave up your only son so that we convinced you'll not hold anything back. We come to worship you now. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9.30 or 11 o'clock services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.